0: for awards, all-star teams, and things like that in professional sports. Over the years I've been doing this, I have never, ever, ever been faced with a vote this hard. Good morning to you. Good Tuesday morning. I'm Dayon Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports and the newly reborn DK Sports Radio Podcasting Network. The Pirates lost last night 5 nothing to the Cubs. They manufactured all of four hits, all singles. Two of those hits were by Cabrian Hayes. It almost feels like those need to be in a separate category now. It's like, well, Hayes had two hits, but the Pirates also had two. You know? Like, he's way too new to this. And way too good, by the way, to be getting lumped in with this atrocious offense in particular. The Pirates have now lost 14 out of their last 15 games. They've scored a grand total of 31 runs in those 15 games. And yes, that's pretty much two runs a game. J.T. Brubaker pitched well, six and two-thirds. Gave up two runs, four hits. Struck out nine against walking ones got good stuff. To me, he's earned a spot in the twenty twenty one rotation. And not just by default. He's been good. He's he's encouraging. I like that. More of that, less of the other stuff. So what's my vote? Oh wow. Well here's how this works. Every year the Pittsburgh chapter of the Baseball Writers Association of America, which I've been a member for 15 years, 16 years, something like that, back to 2005, puts together a collaborative set of awards for the team. There's a team MVP, there's a team pitcher of the year that's named after Steve Blass, and then there's a cooperation with the media award that's named after the late, great Chuck Tanner. Uh, These are usually difficult decisions for other reasons. I mean, starting with the Tanner Award, we haven't had a chance to talk with anybody. You know, it's just been nothing but Zoom calls. Like, who's been the best on Zoom calls? How do you even give that out? But just setting that aside, picking a pitcher of the year is no picnic. I mean, there there really isn't anybody that where you'd look at and say, you know, boy, this guy's really stood out. You know, even if it was just one, or even if it was just like the, you know, the the best of a bad lot, kind of thing. You know, when you talk about the when you talk about the the leaders on the staff, uh, the team's win totals. <laughs> Let's just get old fashioned here, just for the fun of it. There are three pitchers tied with two each. And they're all relievers. I'm not making this up. <laughs> Sam Howard has two, Richard Rodriguez has two, and Chris Stratton has two. These are the pitching wins. Uh, ERA, the answer to that technically is nobody. Because there isn't anybody on a staff who has enough who has enough innings to to qualify for anything. Uh Trevor Williams has made ten starts, but he never hangs around in them long enough to qualify for anything. His ERA is six point seven. Maybe he should be our guy. Right? Are we in are we in on Trevor? Let's see who else. I'm going through my iPad here, see who else I can find that'd be qualified for the Pirates pitcher of the year. And and trying actually here to be serious, because it's not easy to be serious in this situation maybe Brubaker you know I mean or, or Chad Cool, but I mean if you're if you're giving those awards out in situations like that or with, with statistics like that you're just you're crushing the award for years to come you know who would want to be attached to this Strikeouts. Brubaker is tied with three other guys, actually, for the strikeout lead. The difference is Brubaker came along a lot later than Derek Holland, Joe Musgrove, and Williams. Maybe it's Brubaker. I don't know. He's had three decent starts in a row. That ought to get you team MVP this year. But speaking of team MVP, try to get this one. The team leader in batting average and the player that Derek Shelton himself identified as the Pirates' best player over the past month or so, and he was right when he said it, is Eric Gonzalez. Eric, like nicest guy in the world, has had a nice little bounce back from looking like his career was, you know, just over. He's now batting two hundred forty five. He is the top hitter on the team. He's batting 245. Colin Moran, who you know, has gotten some pats on the back for all the home runs he's hit is batting 236 now. I'm sorry, he's got 8 home runs. I stand corrected. But he's still batting what he's batting. The rest of them, Josh Bell 226, Kevin Newman 224, Adam Frazier, 212, Brian Reynolds 182. These are the only six hitters who are qualified. And I say this with humor for the batting title, meaning 3.1 plate appearances per your team's games. Is Eric Gonzalez your team MVP? I mean I guess the safe choice if you're looking for someone, you know who would kind of, you know, cross enough, uh, cross off enough boxes, would be Jacob Stallings. Uh, Jacob Stallings has been excellent defensively. Um, you know he's hit well enough. Uh, he's got two fifty-two average, seven o three OPS, two homers, seventeen RBIs, had a couple of big hits. And he's the one who's had to suffer more than anybody in catching all this terrible pitching. Maybe he's it, right? Right? Hello? Is anybody going to help me out on this? I can't even picture the presentation of these awards. Fortunately, I'm pretty sure we'll all be socially distanced still when the awards are delivered. Maybe we can just like send them by email or something. What a season! I, I I get look, it's it's a short year and everything, and all the other goofy stuff that's happened, and they've had the thirteen injuries in the first month, a couple more obviously this month. But I just can't shake off this hitting thing. You know, that's the one that just jumps out at me. The the pitching you can almost explain. Almost. Most of it. The hitting you can't. How do all, all of the hitters go sour at once? Well, lucky for them, their season will still be over after this coming Sunday in Cleveland. And I'll still be worried about how to vote when we come back. Football. This, this one I can do. Let's pick just for fun the most surprising player the Steelers have had through these two games. And I'm sure there's you know there's different ways to look at something like that. Uh, there's different ways to judge what's considered surprising by whose measure, by whose metrics but the player that maybe, how about this, the player who might have surprised the Steelers the most. This segment of Daily Shot is brought to you by the personal injury law firm of Luxembourg, Garbett Kelly, and George. They represent people who are hurt in car accidents, who need help with workers' comp and medical malpractice claims. The attorneys at LGKG pride themselves in doing what they say they're going to do. They've been doing that for over 80 years. LGKG has offices in Cranberry, Newcastle, Beaver Falls, Butler, and Elwood City, and you can learn more about them online at lgkg.com or by calling them at 888-842-5454. Here's my choice for the player who would have surprised the Steelers the most, regardless how how any of us feels about it, that would be Tyson Alualu. Why, you say? I mean, they're the ones that traded for him. They're the ones that respected the fact that he had the first-round pedigree when he came over from San Diego. There are people who thought that maybe he still had something left in the tank. There are others who I'm sure didn't think that. So why would he have surprised the Steelers the fact that through two games he's not only ably filled what they expect out of a modern nose tackle, meaning it's not just plugging up offensive linemen the way Casey Hampton, Big Snack, used to do. There's more to it. They do expect you to get to the backfield the way Javon Hargrave did. Uh, They expect you to stop the run the way eh, Javon Hargrave did. (laughs) They expect you uh, to be able to still, in that snack mode, blow up holes enough for your linebackers and other stunting blitzers to get through to get to the quarterback. Well, through two games, Alu-Alu's got five tackles, one of them for a loss, two tipped passes, And he's just generally been really, really good. I mean, he's he's made an impact on that line in a way that uh, when I hear people who have line pedigree discuss it, uh, has been something that's opened up a lot of doors for other guys along the front seven, but also for all that blitzing that you're seeing from the secondary. Heck, Mike, Hilton might as well have been part of the Denver backfield. He was in their faces so often. That happens for a reason. That happens because the Broncos have to respect who's up front. They can't be getting all gimmicky. And if they think they've got just some nobody over at nose tackle, they're not going to bother with him. Alulu, of course, wants none of this. Here's some of what he had to say to us yesterday. I feel like I was always confident in my abilities. Um, I knew that I just wanted to be part of something special, and you know, got off to a great start in 2017 with that team, and you know, hopefully, we can even take it the next step. So, um, like I said, always been confident in my abilities, but it's you know, just being grateful for this opportunity. I thank God. Um, for where he's placed me, uh, for where I'm at now, and I'll continue to try and make the most of that opportunity. He's wired like that, like really even keel guy, uh, not especially chatty, uh, but very businesslike. Uh, his teammates respect that about him. They really, really like the guy. And I think they like the guy all the more because he wasn't, appreciated or embraced maybe, maybe as much as he should have been before getting to Pittsburgh. I can't speak to all that. I do know that since he's been with the Steelers, they've really, really uh, welcomed having him around. Never more than this season. Never more than this season. What I'm left with, though, if it sounds like I've been getting to a butt in all of this, is why, if the Steelers knew this, did they make that extra last-ditch attempt to bring Hargrave back when they really couldn't afford it. Remember that? Maybe not. It kind of flew under the radar. Hargrave was signed by the Eagles, and when it happened, I remember having virtually no reaction to it because I never thought for a second he'd be back. Not with Kevin Colbert's cap where it was, and not with the other needs, many other needs, that would have to be filled. Not with the many other priorities for longer-term extensions, like Cam Hayward, who they ended up getting done after some other restructurings and deferments. But the day after Hargrave signed, and he was on a Zoom call with Philadelphia reporters, and they asked him, you know who else was interested? Meaning, not so much who was interested all along. Because you, when you're a free agent, you're going to hear from two thirds of your league more often than not, right at the beginning. If you're a decent player, you're asking when you ask that, who were the finalists? And he mentioned two other teams. One of them was the Steelers. I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Never saw that coming. The amount of money that the Eagles put forth on that deal. $39 million over three years. He's a $13 million a year player. Where? Where were the Steelers going to come up with this money? I, I know this doesn't matter now. But I find it that much more amusing. Not only... That they were going to try this and still, and still find a way to keep Cam Hayward and make sure that they're still doing enough things over the next two, three years to make a serious attempt to keep other free agents in an absolute dead certainty attempt to make sure that TJ Watt stays in the fold. What they could have been thinking with this, I'm not sure, especially since you would think they knew what they had in Tyson Alulu And I know he hasn't been a nose tackle his whole life. He's done most of his work on the defensive line, either on the left or right side, sometimes in a standard 4-3, but he's not been a true nose tackle that much. But you knew that he was versatile. You knew about his character. You knew about his athleticism, and obviously everybody knew about his pedigree. And yet the Steelers not only made apparently a very serious offer to keep Javon Hargrave, they also re-signed Big Dan, Dan McCullers for a seventh straight year. And I know he was cut and everything, but at one point he was signed. So sometimes you got to be a little bit careful when giving out excessive praise. There's always context that can come in to kind of foul things up, and I think it does in this case. Before we go over the top saying, wow, the Steelers were just brilliant in letting Hargrave go and keeping Alu-Alu, I'm not sure that they were. I think they just kind of walked into this one. You know what I'm saying? Again, you give credit. They were the ones who brought him to Pittsburgh. Good for them. They're the ones that made him feel loved, And utilized him even in 2019 way more than I think most people realized. But he's out there now, he's at 46% of the snaps. This is a team where the head coach was speaking openly just a couple months ago about being real heavy on sub packages. And they've got their nose tackle out on the field 46% of the time. Why? Because he's done the job, he's done all the jobs. Good for him, but easy a little bit on the good for them. When we come back, another football thing that might surprise you. Wear your masks, people. Wear them. It's okay. The masks don't bite. No one's infringing asking you, or in professional cases, or public cases, requiring you to wear a mask. If you don't, you might end up like the Denver Broncos. This portion of Daily Shot is brought to you by our friends at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. They've got a special announcement to make tomorrow. Before coronavirus struck, the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank was working toward a better future, and the pandemic confirmed the need for food assistance and further highlighted the food bank's mission in our region. Everyone, I'm sure we can agree, deserves a healthy and hunger-free life, and yet one in nine of our neighbors in western Pennsylvania struggle to have enough food, don't know where the next meal is going to come from. 260,000 people, by their estimates, including 70,000 children, experience what's known as food insecurity on a regular basis. Join our friends at the food bank tomorrow, that's Wednesday, September 23 at 10 a.m., for an important announcement regarding the food bank's future. And in the interim, visit growsharethrive.org for more information. Again, that's growsharethrive.org. The NFL late Monday night gave out fines to the Broncos, the 49ers, and the Seahawks. And these weren't little slaps on the wrist. The Broncos were fined, first, independently, $100,000 to the head coach, Vic Fangio, for not properly wearing his mask or not wearing his mask at all at times during the game at Heinz Field. As a result of others also being on that sideline improperly protected, the NFL Find the Broncos a quarter of a million dollars, $250,000. And they did the same with Seattle and San Francisco. The total amount of the fines crosses just over a million dollars. These are the biggest fines that have been given out, or issued, I should say, to any NFL team for any reason since the 90s. In more than 25 years. Yeah, I mean, I can hear you right now. What about the Patriots? The Patriots, well, the Patriots were docked draft picks and whatever else here. I'm just talking about fines. A week earlier, the NFL had put out a very sternly worded memo warning everyone that they saw some things on sidelines that they didn't like and that they were going to clamp down on it. And at least these three teams, quite clearly, didn't take that as seriously as they needed to. I can hear any number of responses to this in my head right now. Like, who cares? They're out there bashing each other in the face and, you know... What difference does it make if the coaches are wearing masks? They're around these players all the time. Aren't these guys in a bubble? Blah, 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 whatever else. And I'm reminded of my own thought the other day at Heinz Field when I noticed after the game, there is a rule. One of the rules is that players are not permitted to exchange jerseys with the opponent. Again, it's another way of just keeping them separate and keeping things and elements and in this case, an article of clothing, separate. If one team's got it, one player's got it, this at least minimizes or reduces the risk of cross-infection. And I know, again, they're out there, they're three inches apart at the line of scrimmage, they're tackling, they're huffing, they're puffing. I'm sure they're spit saliva flying all over the place, stuff out of, not to gross you out, people's noses and everything else. And you wonder, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? The answer is that the approach works. I've stopped questioning it. Uh, the first time that I saw In Major League Baseball, a first baseman wearing a mask uh, had the same reaction I'll bet everyone else did. Like, seriously? Really? I mean, all these guys are being tested and everything else, and it's the first baseman wearing a mask. Why? Because the other team has a runner at first, and they're a little too close. Okay, but if there's a play at the plate, there's going to... You can go back and forth on this into infinity. But what we do know is that minimizing or just reducing the amount of contact helps. And I'm going to give you an example. When the Miami Marlins and the St. Louis Cardinals had their issues with coronavirus earlier in the baseball season, The first response that was had by everybody was to do all kinds of contact tracing. Who was near this person? Who was near that person? Who's got it? Who doesn't? Uh, What kind of cross-pollination was there between the two clubhouses? Do they share equipment managers or whatever? And in that moment, in that moment, it becomes something that everyone takes seriously because now you're in the danger of super-spreader territory, as it's called. And no one wants that. That's what the NFL is trying to avoid, what Major League Baseball has very successfully navigated. I still wish there were more people than me giving them credit for this, because everyone's like, baseball's never going to work, never going to work, got to have a bubble. It's worked, and it's worked because they've been disciplined with stuff like this, with stuff that feels silly, that feels ridiculous, that feels over the top the moment you first do it. But then at the end of the day, when you are that disciplined and you are that responsible to the people who are around you and, of course, by extension, to their family, to their friends, to their elders who are at the greatest risk, It works. It works. The NFL is not in a bubble. The NFL has to do what Major League Baseball is doing. The NFL is absolutely right to have cracked down on all three of these teams, regardless of whether or not there were uh, negative tests, positive tests. Of course, there haven't been, at least not nothing that's been announced. This was done as a preemptive strike. This was done... Bent. a negative scenario that everyone would be fearing in this good for them good for the league thanks so much for listening to this make sure you're checking out additionally our Steelers and Pirates podcasts done by Chris Carter and Dale Lawley on football Alex Stone and Noah Hiles